Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elite, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world. And in a special live recording in London in November, we'll be looking at the coming age of the machine. I suspect, being the kind of intelligent people that listeners to Reading Our Times must be, that you all have minds. Why else would you spend hour after hour absorbed in such intellectually nourishing conversation? But I admit, I don't know that you have. I couldn't prove it. This, of course, is a very old philosophical conundrum. How do you know that another person has a mind, feelings, thought, an inner life? But it's an old philosophical conundrum that has a very modern feel to it. Indeed, that even has some urgency to it. Because the better we get at understanding, manipulating and recreating the world, the more we are faced with the question of whether other things, such as animals, AI, aliens, have minds. And if they do, or if they could, what kind of minds might they be? And what would that mean for us, and for our understanding of ourselves, and for our responsibilities to them? Philip Ball is one of the very best science writers we have today. Not only has he real expertise across a range of different scientific disciplines, but he has a deep interest in the broader philosophical, social and cultural context in which science always takes place, and an admirable generosity of spirit which makes for some very constructive writing. And his most recent book tackles many of these questions and is entitled The Book of Minds, how to understand ourselves and other beings from animals to aliens. Phil, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. I'm almost loath to begin with the question, what is a mind, as we could easily spend the next 30 minutes talking about that. But you do face that question straight up in the book, so I guess we should. So what is a mind? And in particular, how does it differ from a brain? Right. The brain is an organ of the body. That's that's an easy one to deal with. You know, it's a physical thing. We can take it out and look at it. The traditional notion is that the brain is the seat of the mind. I want to challenge that in the book. I think that the brain is where the real business of mind formation, if you like, goes on. But there's more to it than that. Because the brain is an organ, it's part of the body, it's receiving information from the body. I'd argue that certainly our mind is a whole somatic experience. It incorporates what's going on in the body. There are philosophers of mind, such as Andy Clark, who believe that the mind expands even further than that. It goes beyond the body, that there is an extended mind, which is related to how we interact with our environment. I guess this is an easier concept to grasp now that we have smartphones that record all our personal addresses and all our information and so forth, that in a sense, we're outsourcing a part of what our mind used to be to these devices. And in a very literal sense, we become dependent on them. So they are essentially a part of our mind. If we lose them, if they're destroyed, then we lose some of our sort of cognitive ability. Yes. So it's a complicated question. And when we start thinking more broadly about 
animals, maybe about AI and so on, how to think about the notion of mind there, it becomes even less clear because they don't have bodies like ours. They don't necessarily interact with their environment in the way that we do. So what I do at the beginning of my book is to say, well, I'm going to use a working definition of mind. I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic about it, but it will get us started because, as you say, we have to face that question. And so I say, for things that have a mind, there is something that it is like to be that thing. So there is certainly something it's like to be human. You know, we're, we're conscious, we're aware. I think most people now would accept that there's probably something it is like to be a chimpanzee, to be a gorilla, almost certainly a dog, a cat. What about a bee? Is there something it's like to be a bee? Well, maybe. What about a plant? What about a bacterium? Mm. So it's a concept that we can't erect firm barriers around. But this is a working definition. And that's a very interesting definition as well, because it shades quite closely to Thomas Nagel's famous definition of consciousness. And I wanted to probe the relationship between mind and consciousness. So how would you relate mind and consciousness? Yeah, this is a tricky one. And I would want to keep them as distinct things. I think consciousness itself is a more subtle, nuanced, and in fact, many faceted notion. We tend to think of consciousness as a thing that we have and that perhaps other creatures have more or less of. It's a particular property that we know we have, although some philosophers of mind even dispute that. We suspect, you know, some animals might have a bit less of it. But actually, consciousness, I think, is a, is a more subtle thing. I think that um, other animals may have different types of consciousness or different dimensions of consciousness. But you're right. My notion that a thing that is minded has some kind of awareness of self. I think that makes sense. For that reason, I argue that certainly none of the computer systems that we have at the moment genuinely have something like mind. But actually, what I really want to do in the book is to get beyond this what could be an obstacle of making definitions about mind and think more broadly about this notion of mindedness, of cognitive processes that are basically about the way an entity interacts with its environment, collects information about that environment and makes decisions. And that's a very important point because early on in the book, you start talking about mind space. This idea that not all minds are basically going to be copies of what it's like to be me. There are different ways of being minded. So walk us through the idea of mind space. Well, this was not my idea, but it was the idea that allowed me a way in to thinking about this general problem. The genesis of the book was that I was grappling with possibly writing an article about the notion of how we understand what AI is doing. And this was several years ago when AI was much less complex. And it was a very hard issue to engage with until I came across an idea that goes back to a paper published in 1984 by a computer scientist at the University of Birmingham in England, Aaron Sloman. And he introduced this notion of the space of possible minds. So he said there are many kinds of minds that we've loosely recognised, they're clearly not all of the same sort. Maybe the way to think about that is to think that there are particular dimensions of mind, a multidimensional space in which there are various coordinates that measure different properties of mind. Maybe one of them has to do with consciousness or awareness. Maybe one of them has to do with the amount of memory it has. One of them might be to do with its ability to solve problems. And in his way of thinking about it, maybe they're orthogonal. Maybe you can have one without having any of the other. So we can think of this notional 
abstract space of possible minds. And then we can start to locate these different entities within it. And actually everything is within that. If we think of a brick, I don't believe a brick has any kind of mind at all. So, you know, in this space, a brick simply is at zero on all these axes. And we kind of can forget about that. But anything that isn't falls meaningfully within the space of possible minds and we can start to make comparisons between them. And so really this is much more useful than any kind of dogmatic definition of what is a mind because it allows us an inclusive sort of vocabulary for thinking about mindedness. Mm. So what you're doing there is effectively breaking down the different constituent elements that ultimately feed into mindedness, agency or experience or intelligence or whatever else it is, and pointing out that not all species, not all entities have these in the same quantities and the same quality, and therefore they will have different kinds of minds, different ways of engaging with understanding being in the world. Absolutely, yes. It's about breaking down the ingredients of mind. And we don't really know what those ingredients are, but I think we have enough knowledge now to at least begin some kind of plotting, some kind of mapping of the space of possible minds. And in fact, some people have already tried to do that in a very simplistic way of thinking about maybe a two-dimensional map of minds. This was something that came out of a, a study in 2007 by three psychologists and cognitive scientists, Daniel Wegner, Kurt Gray and Heather Gray in the US. And they simply went out and asked a whole bunch of people, what do you think are the properties of the minds of different entities. So humans, including children and babies, you know, the computers that we had then, different types of animal. And the responses they got could all be boiled down to people thinking about mind in a two-dimensional way. So one dimension was a notion of agency, which is about the ability to get things done. The other one was about experience, the capacity to feel things. So babies don't have a lot of agency. They're not able to get a lot of stuff done, but they experience things intensely, probably in some ways more intensely than adults do. Computers, on the other hand, or robots, they can already do things, but we generally suspect that there is no sense of experience that they have. So there's two data points within that space of possible minds. So already there's the beginnings of a way of plotting a space of possible minds. So I want to go into that space a bit in our discussion and look at various different kinds of minds. But before we do so, I think it's important to take a detour of our evolution because you make the point in the book that obviously minds evolved, but it's interesting to explore why. You make the point that the evolved mind exists to free us from our genes, which I think is an extremely important and telling point. What do you mean by that? If we think about minds as being on a continuum, both in the natural world of existing organisms, but also a continuum in evolution, I mean, like everything else, I think we have to assume that whatever this thing is that we recognize as mind, it's evolved in us. If we think about that continuum, then we can go back to single-celled organisms, for example, bacteria are still around us. They already are complex entities. They show a complexity of behaviour that some scientists would argue is best understood in cognitive terms. So already they have some capacity to integrate information from their surroundings and use it in some way in conjunction with the state they're already in to come up with some behavioural decision. We can see bacteria doing this. However, it's very limited. As 
organisms got more complex. So I think particularly as they became multicellular and became larger, their environments, the things that they would encounter became more complex. And I think it was particularly true once organisms started to move around and crucially to predate, to prey on one another. There were a lot of things that you had to look out for. These organisms had to start making judgments about whether to do something about whether to take an evasive manoeuvre or to take a risk or whatever. So it became more complicated. And the idea that the answer to every decision that they might face could be somehow programmed into the genome so that it just happened in an automatic machine-like way, that became harder and harder to sustain. They couldn't be programmed in that way to give a behavioural prescription for every single situation they were going to encounter in life. Genes were no longer adequate to equip those primitive creatures with a sort of book of rules for making decisions. That's where minds come in. That's what minds do. So minds in that way are an alternative to relying on some kind of prescription for all behaviours that is encoded somehow mm. in the genome. And it makes absolute sense that this is what evolution would do. If you like, to personify it, it would recognise that genes weren't going to be enough and that something like a mind, something that integrates behaviour in a way that is not prescriptive, but is adaptive and is contingent, that's really what is needed. And I think that really was the beginning of mind. Really interesting. But you also go on to make the point that for some species, and most obviously ourselves, you say at one point the remarkable fact about the human mind is that it does so much beyond what seems needful. And elsewhere, I think you quote Pinker saying about how the human brain and human intelligence and human mindedness is, in terms of energy, it's hugely expensive and it's not necessarily obvious that evolution would lead to that. Now, you and I are both fully paid up evolutionists, so we're not in any way trying to sneak in a kind of ID notion in here. But it is nonetheless strange, isn't it, how once mind gets going in the way you've talked about it, in some instances, it really runs ahead of what it needs to be doing. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a, a mystery. I mean, it sounds boastful, really, on behalf of our species to say that we have more <laughs> cognitive ability than we need. But that does seem clear. Other primates don't have written language. They don't have complex cultures like we do. And yet they get on fine. They have a great deal of, of behavioural flexibility and adaptiveness. So why do we have so much more? The question comes down to what on earth could be the evolutionary advantage of having a mind that could come up with the theory of general relativity? or could come up with bleak house or pride and prejudice. What is that for? So there is a, a mystery there why we seem to have this cognitive excess beyond what evolution strictly seems to require. And clearly, it's a mixed blessing because it means that we have these complex societies. We're able to come up with sophisticated ideas, works of art that move us in all sorts of ways. And yet, you know, we can see what we're doing to the planet uniquely amongst species as a result of these complex minds. So why do we have this cognitive excess? I suspect that part of the answer is that this is simply what you get with minds. If you're going to have a mind that is able to come up with language, with the ability to interact and communicate in these very subtle and sophisticated ways, once you have that, it's a kind of runaway effect. The language isn't going to just stop at being used for coordinating hunting behaviour. 
we're going to start using it and developing concepts through that language that are going to set us wondering about why we're here, what is our place in the world. So I think this is probably an inevitable offshoot. We are particularly social creatures. Interestingly, we had Robin Dunbar on the show a few series ago, and he talked about the ability to read other people's minds being central to human evolution and the fact that we have, I think it was five orders of intentionality. So I know what you're thinking, what Phil, our producer, is thinking about what I'm saying to you, etc. And so that sophistication and complexity in the human mind is somehow tied up with our hyper-sociality and our need to read other people's minds, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I completely go along with that. I think that seems to be a crucial part of our evolution, although we're not unique in that. You know, there are very complex social interactions, particularly amongst other primates. But it may not be the complete answer. I mean, some people think that uh, perhaps what we've got here is a runaway effect due to sexual selection, much like what we see in the peacock's tail, this ridiculously excessive part of the body that has grown bigger and bigger because it serves a sexual function. It's a display function for mating. And so perhaps in us, having this advanced cognition had a similar effect. If you came across someone that had these superior cognitive abilities, that improved somehow their likelihood of getting a mate. Although that would indicate that the nerds were the most sexually attractive beings on the planet. There's a bit of a problem with that one, isn't there? There is, I'm afraid, yes. That's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. But others think that actually it's not a, a, so much an evolutionary effect at all as a cultural one, that the cognitive complexity that we have took off once we had language and the ability to, to make art and to make music, and that this just led itself to a sort of runaway in cognition and also to the ability to pass on on knowledge to generations by cultural transmission rather than by genetic transmission. Let's return to this really interesting idea of mind space. According to what you say at one point, animals develop their minds according to their umwelt, U-M-W-E-L-T. Tell us what you mean by that important word. This notion, it goes back to the early 20th century, and it refers to the perceptual world that a creature has, the knowledge of its environment that it uses in order to make behavioural choices. So, for example, a bird knows that it is able to fly. So it has that expanded cognitive arena that we don't have. And in particular, there are birds like the European robin that are able to sense the Earth's magnetic field and they use that for navigation. That's a part of their world that is totally alien to us. Bats and some other creatures use sonar to find their way around. So that's a part of its umwelt. This is the information that other animals use in order to create a sense of their world and to make decisions on the basis of that model of reality. The Umwelt is really about the representation, the internal representation that we have of the world around us, which is always incomplete. Now, one can understand or thinks one can understand something of the mind of a creature 
whose umwelt is closer to ours. But you point out in a, a chapter in the book called Aliens on the Doorstep, there are some animals, most famously, of course, the octopus, who are as close to being aliens as we're ever likely to discover. And yet all the indications are that they have some kind of mind. I think this is particularly interesting. I keep on coming back to this, really, because partly it seemed to suggest to me that mindedness is almost built into the evolutionary process. And also it reminds us that there are ways of being, ways of mind on our planet that are literally inconceivable to us. Yes, this notion that we should regard cephalopods, octopuses in particular, as the closest we can get to an alien. This is something that the philosopher of mine, Peter Godfrey Smith, suggested. And, you know, he's also made the point that octopuses represent really a distinct evolutionary experiment in building minds because our common ancestor was a very simple creature with a nervous system but probably not with a lot of mind a, a kind of primitive flatworm so every aspect of the the octopus mind has really evolved independently from ours and they have a very different structure of brain and nervous system to us they do have a centralized brain in the head but more than half of their nerves are distributed throughout the body. And each of the legs has a little cluster of nerves called a ganglia, which can to some degree be thought of as not like a little brain, but certainly as a controlling centre for that limb. So it seems that the octopus sometimes operates its limbs independently from the central brain. Peter Godfrey Smith suggests that it must be a bit like the octopus is sometimes watching its arms do things as if they are just other creatures making their own decisions. So what is it like to be a creature like that, which has, as far as we can see, a kind of distributed intelligence and perhaps even a distributed consciousness? Some researchers have suggested that Unlike us, where we integrate all of this stuff that we experience into a single unified sense of consciousness and self, perhaps that doesn't happen for the octopus. Or perhaps it sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Sometimes it feels like a certain thing and sometimes there is a more dispersed notion of self for it. So it's very, very hard in the case of a, of a creature like that to even imagine what sort of experience it has. And yet, the more we observe about its behaviour, the more difficult it becomes to avoid the conclusion that it really does seem to have some kind of sentience. The behaviour of octopus is very complex. They seem to have some kind of notion of play. They seem to experiment with things. They seem to seek out new experiences, to play with unfamiliar objects. And yet, one striking thing about them is that they're very solitary creatures. So whatever this mind is for, whatever it's about, and we don't really know, it doesn't seem to be about, unlike ours, it doesn't seem to be about social interaction. There's something yeah. else going on. Let's move on from octopuses because it's next natural step, which is aliens. And you do talk about alien minds in the book. Now, in one regard, by definition, we're talking about something that is unimaginable to us here. But on the other, you make the point that there are in the universe underlying laws of mathematics and physics and chemistry. Evolution appears to be 
convergent on certain solutions and wherever it exists, it's likely that alien life will need to source energy and to move and to maintain some flexibility and to have some memory. So that points to the idea that you talk about in the book that actually alien minds might not be quite as alien to us as we think. That argument has been made, certainly, and I can see a lot of sense in it. But what I wanted to point out in a cautionary way in the book is that the searches that are going on for extraterrestrial intelligence seem very strongly predicated on the notion that we're looking for minds like ours. So, for example, people suggest looking for broadcast signals, radio waves that seem to encode mathematical constants like pi, because the notion is, well, whatever aliens are like, if they're advanced like us, or even more so, they'll have come across this universal constant that is to do with geometry pi, the ratio of the connected to the ratio of the, the diameter to the circumference of a circle and so on. You have to start somewhere. So it's not at all a ridiculous thing to say, but I do think it's limited because it does seem to present us as the natural sort of point of convergence of any evolution of mind. There are a lot of scientists who, who are quite convinced that if there are intelligences that are as at least as sophisticated as us, they will have discovered this and formulated the same laws of physics as us, because it's certainly true that those laws of physics seem to apply everywhere in the universe. But I'm not at all convinced that even if they had done that, they would express them, they would experience them in the same way. There are good reasons, good arguments now that the way any sort of cognitive entity represents the world is highly contingent on the kinds of experiences, the kind of umwelt actually, that it has. And if there are intelligent creatures in a totally aquatic environment, it's not at all clear that they will conceptualise the way the world works in the same way as we do. Mm. So I really wanted to raise that note of caution. Partly the question comes down to whether it's possible for any kind of sophisticated mind to evolve other than by Darwinian evolution. And the argument goes that if it is Darwinian, then it will be concerned with its own survival and replication and so on, and there will be competition and predation and the rest of it. That seems to be a very plausible argument, but I would be wary of taking it too much for granted. There are certainly some scientists who think it's not a given that all complex lifelike forms have to get there by Darwinian evolution. Yeah, really interesting. It delights some, at least, of the listeners to Reading Our Times. You, as an atheist science writer, have a small section in the book on the mind of God, and one in which you quote David Bentley Hart, who happens to be one of the guests in another episode this series. What conclusions do you come to on the mind of God? Well, one hears this expression, one hears it chucked about in scientific terms, I mean, famously at the end of Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. I figured that if I was going to write a book about possible minds, I had to go there. I had to grapple with this, but try to do it seriously because, you know, very often, as with Hawking's case, it's a very sort of flippant or casual notion that, again, and totally anthropomorphizes God as perhaps some kind of geometer or someone who's dreamed up the laws of physics. I really wanted to look at what 
theologians have said over the ages about what the notion of the mind of God could be like. And David's book, The Experience of God, was fantastic, was absolutely central in that. And that book, and, and David, in fact, himself persuaded me that actually, if we take the notion of God seriously, I don't believe that God is the kind of entity that we can meaningfully talk about as minded. It doesn't mean that God is mindless. It means that we can't fit God within this space of possible minds. And so, in a sense, I'm afraid my conclusion was quite negative in terms of being able to say anything about what the mind of God is like, other than this deep and serious theological notion of God makes God not the kind of thing that we can find a place for in the space of possible minds. I don't think you have to apologise for that at all, because in one regard, at least, that's perfectly in keeping with a, a very deep strand of Christian theology known as apophatic or, or negative theology, which precisely comes to that conclusion that if you could fit the mind of God into mind space, you're not talking about the mind of God. It's not a created entity in the same way as all the other entities in mind space are. So if you can find a slot, you know, somewhere between us and octopuses, you're probably not talking about God in the first instance. Well, I think if I remember rightly, doesn't it go back at least to Augustine saying something along the lines of, if you can think about it, it's not God. Yes, effectively. And there is a live tradition whereby it argues that the best way of approaching a stable and accurate, in inverted commas, conception of what God is, is by denying the things that God is not. It won't get you to a conclusion, but it will at least help you to slowly pare away the multiple false accretions that we get in this matter. Yeah. And so in a sense, I guess I wanted to simply say to scientists who, who talk about these things, let's take it seriously. And if you do take it seriously, then I think the discussion about God is to be had elsewhere. In as far as Reading Our Times has any particular subject that it keeps on coming back to, it's the question of human nature and what, if anything, makes us distinct and different and what are the characteristics and dimensions of, of human nature. And I want us to, to conclude by talking about the human mind. You point out in the book that there are characteristics that do make the human mind different. You talk about imagination, what I would terms relationality, our hypersociality, our thirst for need for orientation around the idea of meaning. Tell us the extent to which you think human mind is different from those of other similar species and other animals around us. I would hope that this notion of the space of possible minds allows us both to acknowledge and recognise the differences and the things that do seem to be unique and special about the human mind without somehow having to place that at the apex of what minds can be. <laughs> we are a point or actually a cloud of points once we start thinking about neurodiversity in the space of possible minds. And there are many other points in that space that are, that are other creatures, but there are things that are unique to us. It seemed to me the notion of this imaginative ability that we have is one of not just one of the most unique, but one of the most precious that we have, and actually probably one of the most useful. There is an argument that has been made, in particular by the linguist Daniel Bohr, that language evolved not simply as a means of crude communication about hunting patterns and social relations and so on, but that it is crucially about 
storytelling. It creates the possibility of projecting into someone else's mind our own experience, our own thoughts, or projecting into their minds a vision of, of something else entirely. I think this notion of, of imagination needn't be something to romanticise human minds. I think there's something actually quite deep there about the nature of the human mind, this ability to create representations of worlds that we haven't experienced and that may not even exist. That is extraordinary. Daniel Dorr suggests, well, maybe that is part of the evolutionary value, that stories have a real evolutionary value, this ability to communicate these imagined worlds. So one thing I would love to see is more scientific research into the, the true nature and meaning and value of human imagination as something that seems to be quite special to us. The book is called The Book of Minds, How to Understand Ourselves and Other Beings. Philip Ball, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. Next week, I'll be speaking to Linda Yu about her book, The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Given how much developing countries in particular rely on Chinese lending, if the Chinese economy has a crisis and they stop lending or worse, call in their loans, that's going to deeply impact a number of developing countries and emerging markets. That's how a Chinese crisis could become a global one. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find details of a special live event in London this November, in which we'll be talking about the coming age of the machine with Lord Robert Skidelsky. We hope to see you there.